Hello, this is season two of the Idea to Start a Podcast, where we identify and break down strategies that'll help early stage entrepreneurs give their startup ideas a fighting chance. Idea to Startup is brought to you by Tacklebox, an accelerator program for idea stage entrepreneurs with full-time jobs. Tacklebox runs cohorts in person in New York City, as well as virtually. Check out gettacklebox.com to apply. This week's conversation was great. We spoke with Ashley Merrill, founder of Lunia, an innovative sleepwear company with an incredibly strong and focused brand. Lunia's story was fascinating to me, and Ashley gets specific and tactical in an episode that's absolutely must-listen for anyone building a brand or dealing with e-commerce. We talked through the early days, how she validated the customer need and market, what her initial product looked like versus what she maybe hoped it would look like, how she got early customers interested, tactics for growth, supply chain optimization, pricing, we hit on a lot. This is a really great conversation. And as always, if you've got thoughts or questions, shoot me an email at brian at gettacklebox.com. Hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for coming by. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And and so I guess a good place to start is for those who don't know, what is Lunia? So Lunia is a sleepwear company and we make sleepwear for the modern woman. And then recently we actually launched Lago, which is our uh, male counterpart, which is sleepwear for the modern man. Amazing. And I, I have some questions on that, but I think the best place to start. So a lot of our listeners are going to be super early stage entrepreneurs. So they'll have um, ideas or they'll have early stage startups. Maybe they're still working on them while they have a full-time job. And yeah. I think what will be really interesting is just to start super early stage. So like, where did this idea initially come from? So, I mean, the idea originated a while before I actually uh, got going or it actually came to action on anything. Um, so really it started uh, probably nine years ago and I started working on it about seven years ago and um, we didn't launch a product until about five years ago. So you'll notice wow. there's time gaps there. One of the things I think was that the idea occurred to me in passing and then I spent a lot of time sort of trying to convince myself out of the idea. So I was wearing my husband's old uh, boxer briefs and his, I think it was like an old frat shirt basically with holes in it, <laughs> and, you know, the typical around the house wear. Um, and I, I looked at my reflection and just thought, you know, what is it that has me um, wearing this outfit? And, and could I find something that is a better representation of who I am and that's still comfortable? And it, it made me ask a lot of questions, but when I say I tried to talk myself out of it, it was, I think I just, like many people, there's a lot of risk and a lot of reasons to say no. I was scared I would fail. I thought, you know, I didn't have a background in fashion, thought, what do I know about launching a fashion company? But I'm really grateful for that period of self-doubt, actually. Um, I think we spend a lot of time wishing we didn't have that, but I will say that self-doubt uh, helped me gain confidence in the idea. Um, because there, this wasn't the only entrepreneurial idea I'd ever had. And I beat up a lot of the other ideas and ultimately they didn't mm. make it out to the other side. But Lunia was one that I just kept beating it up and kept trying to tell myself it wasn't a good idea and I couldn't shake it. I love that phrasing of like, you kept beating it up. So 
What, what did that look like? So for those two years, was it just like looking for other products that might have fit the the niche that you would have filled or what did that look yeah. like? Yeah. So luckily now I've, I've got a, a more clearly defined way of articulating what good looks like than I did then. But then what it looked like was almost anecdotally asking friends and trying to figure out what they wear to sleep, trying to make sure that the problem was bigger than just me, you know, and making sure that there was actually a broader market need that I could fill. And it turned out that, you know, everybody I asked was wearing a similar outfit to what I was wearing. So it felt like, yes, there's a need there. Um, It also, you know, there's a lot of the business side. I think that people will go, okay, I'm passionate about something. Um, and so, I, you know, I think I can do it. I think a lot of what I spent my time beating up was, is there market opportunity here? Will people buy this? How big could the market potential be? How would I position this? Who, you know, who will buy this? Why will they buy it? What will resonate with them? What are the right channels to reach this customer? You know, there was a lot of business questions that I had to really prove to myself because I didn't want to be somebody falling into a hobby, you know, and I, I always like to sort of point this out because there's sort of the, the the three circles that I say, like, you know, a good business has to, or three questions a good business has to answer. One of them is, you know, is there a good business case for it? And this is sort of adapted from the good to great book, but uh, is there a good business case for it? Is there a business model? Will people buy it? This kind of thing. Um, differentiation. So how can you make something that someone else can't just as easily make? Why is what you're going to make better? When you get big, what's going to keep other people from just duplicating what you're doing? And then the last one is, are you passionate about it? And so I knew I was passionate, but I really wanted to make sure that I had the other two elements. And so um, that's how I think about it now in a more organized way. In the early way, I was just trying to basically discourage myself in every possible way. You know, oh, online direct-to-consumer companies aren't a thing because this was before they started growing really big. Um, Or, oh, you know, people don't buy sleepwear, so people aren't interested in sleepwear. And, you know, so I would try to figure, you know, try to to get myself to answer the hard questions. And and that's really been helpful for me. Amazing. And that's so interesting because that's that's something that we focus on a lot is try and make – try and prove that your customer doesn't actually want what you are making as opposed to like try and figuring out who will. Yeah. So that, I I love that. Um, the framework is great too. So I, you mentioned that you didn't have a background in fashion. What, what was your background? So I'm much more business by background. So I worked in venture, uh, straight out of undergrad and then, um, actually worked at an online media company doing some M and A and um, more ad-supported media company business, got an opportunity to be an intrapreneur, which is something I highly recommend to people where I learned about early team building. How do you get people rallied against something that they can't see, which is a lot of what being an entrepreneur is. Um, How do you identify a target customer and then execute um, a strategy to solve problems for that customer? So I got the benefit of learning all those things while working somewhere else. Very cool. So I guess the big question would be like that next inflection point. So you've been beating up this idea for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, you're trying to trying to have it prove to you that it's not worth starting. And then you yeah. decide to do it. And, and this is like, so I think that that's a big hurdle for people making physical products is like, all right, now I need to, I need to make something. Yeah. Um, so what did that decision look like? And what was that? How did you go about 
creating the first, the, like the V1? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll put it this way. That stage of beating up the idea, it lasted a while. But by the time I got to the other end of it and I looked myself in the mirror and went, this is a good idea and I am going to do this. I wasn't going to let myself fail. You know, I was committed to the, I will put everything into this until it works. And, and I think that there's a contagiousness about that. Um, and people, or at least in my experience, and I've probably been very lucky in my experiences, when I would meet people and describe my vision and the company I wanted to build and the problems I wanted to solve, by and large, I've been so lucky that people wanted to support me. And it's not monetary support. It would be, okay, how do I get started? I've never made a clothing item before. What do I do first? So yes, I did Google how to make clothing. That was helpful. Um, but then it was funny. I started just putting out into the universe what I wanted to do. And people started volunteering connections for me. So this is a silly example, but I think it's, it's an important one because you think, oh, I need to have all these perfect connections. I shopped at this one retail store near my house. I told the shop owner what my vision was. I said, oh, I want to, you know, start a clothing company. And she said, you know, I know this girl who does operations for one of the brands that I buy um, that goes in the store. Let me see if she'll chat with you. And that was one of the most important early connections that I had. And it wasn't the person that you thought would be the most helpful. And she just was. Um, and then a lot of the connections aren't helpful, but I try to always get out of there and go, okay, maybe this person isn't like going to be able to help me, but do they know somebody else? Can they, can we kick the, the can forward in some way in this conversation? And, you know, it is one foot in front of the other. And eventually I've been lucky enough to be where I am now. Amazing. So I, I, that, that commitment kind of jumps out at me. Um, I think a lot of founders are sort of like, let me dip my toe in, let me see if this works. And it sort of shields you from it not working. And then you don't like totally ever put yourself out there. So you don't fail, yeah. but you probably won't succeed. Yes. Um, did you, did you still have uh, a previous job at that time? Were you like doing this on the side or did you say I'm going full in on this? So at that point I was in business school. Um, oh, and okay. so it felt like the right time to do, to try something like this. And so in a way I was, uh, I was both, it was sort of a hedged scenario then if I really think about it in those terms and that I was actively pursuing an MBA at the same time. And so I guess if it didn't work, I had a, an out case of it, but I will tell you, there's nobody I want to disappoint less than myself. So for me, like that was just the second I said I was going to do it, it was going to be hard to stop me, you know? And I think that that is what it takes. I meet a lot of entrepreneurs. I'm lucky enough to be able to invest in um, people's visions now. And that's been an incredibly gratifying experience. But if I don't sense that this person is all in, I know from personal experience that there's a million things that is that are probably going to derail them. And if their commitment isn't incredibly absolute, uh, they probably won't get where they need to get. Mm, interesting. So something that I, I wonder how early this was part of the vision or you were able to execute on it. Um, when I spoke with a bunch, so I, I told a bunch of friends and people who have gone through Tacklebox that I was going to be speaking with you today. Sure. And I, I got like consistent feedback from a lot of our founders being like, that is the best brand, like that brand, the, the oh. branding, the design. 
Um, I got it over and over. And, and like, I think that one, that's an amazing thing. You should be proud of it. But I wonder about all the, a lot of founders that we work with who want to have physical products, they obviously like in, you know, 2019 brand is important. So when do you start working on that? When did the visualization of like the design aesthetic and the consistency and the focused messaging, like when did that start? I would say like being as, as polished as it is. Sure. Um, it's an evolution and it's multifaceted, right? It's, it's, uh, we started in one place with this general idea of what we wanted to be. And that was not a specific look and feel, but it was a, we want to be a modern sleepwear company that's reimagining the way she thinks of her time outside of work, the way she thinks of her off hours. And so when we looked at it from that framework, actually the problem that we solved, that we wanted to solve, was driving a lot of our creative vision because what we knew was um, we wanted it to be authentic. And I don't mean authentic in the overused marketing term, but I'm a casual person. I, you know, cuss on occasion. If you saw me right now, I'm wearing um, athletic clothes for my lunchtime workout. You know, I, I didn't know how to be anything but what I am. And it does tend to be that founders set a lot of the early framework for the tone of the business. Um, so I think that there were aspects of the business that were almost um, written in the stars just by the very fact that I'm the founder. Uh, but there are many cases where I might know what I want, but I'm not good enough at a craft to get there. So the visuals are a great example. I have a funny story of uh, the of hiring our creative director who was then our social media person. And she, um, I, I ended up calling this girl because she made wall hangings and I wanted to see if she would give me a wall hanging for our shop. And I had checked out her Instagram and her Instagram was super rad. And when we were on the phone, I realized that she actually did social media for a lot of brands. And so after chatting with her for a second and really feeling a connection with her and then looking at her Instagram and realizing that I very much liked her aesthetic, I said, I'm going to send you a job description. I'm going to hang up. If the job description is interesting to you, let's do a do-over on this call and make it an interview and we'll chat tomorrow. And so she lived in Minnesota at the time. Um, and, and this is very early on in the company. And so she um, and I did end up having that interview. We hit it off. It ended up being like the perfect thing for where she was at in a career. She was able to come in very junior. What was nice is in a lot of ways, the brand, we could evolve a lot of the visuals together. Um, and so she's still with the company and she's wonderful. And I think that, um, you know, me knowing what I want and then me finding somebody who shared my vision and could artistically deliver in a way that I couldn't was very helpful. The same is true for product. So uh, not exactly the same hiring structure or not exactly the same hiring um, circumstance. But I think on the product side, I knew what I wanted. I wanted to be not athletic, but functional, beautiful, but cool. You know, there was a lot of a very high bar on, on um, quality. So I knew a lot of those things, but it didn't mean that I always knew exactly how the garments should come together. And so I've been lucky enough to find people that can help execute a lot of that. And then the last aspect of it would be tone. And I think that one thing we realized was that our aesthetic, the power of our aesthetic 
really only worked when combined with the right tone. Because sometimes when something's so beautiful, it can get cold and you don't see yourself in it. So, and for the product that we're creating and the way that we're trying to revolutionize the space, we wanted this to feel approachable. And so we've, we uh, have found someone who's really great on tone, who makes it feel casual. Like I'm talking to my sister about, you know, a piece of clothing that she should wear around the house. And so it kind of just all comes together in a lot of ways. I think that um, I'm sort of the creative through line for the company, but I really am enabled by having really strong creatives in each area of the business. Amazing. And, and I definitely want to circle back to team and prioritization of hiring and all that. Yeah. Um, but, but you mentioned product, and I think that's a good segue into a line of questioning on what that early product looked like. Um, so, so when you like, what did, what did the early release look like? Like how many SKUs were there? Um, how did you decide on what those were? Uh, I I think that that's, that's going to be fascinating for people who are trying to figure out where they should start. I'd like to offer a formal apology to all my (laughs) customers. Um, no, but seriously, uh, there was me and one other person, um, and she was, she and I built, uh, were basically Jill of all trades. So Together, we did operations, we did production, product design, put the website up, took pictures, all of that. And neither she nor I had any background experience in this. So it took us way too long. We worked with contractors. We were limited in um, our capabilities around quantity. So anybody who's manufacturing a physical good, one of the challenges they're constantly running into is MOQs or minimum quantities that they have to order. Mm-hmm. And so you have this huge chicken before the egg problem, which is I wanted to do a small run to see if I was making the right products, to see if, uh, you know, what I would make would resonate. And yet nobody who's manufacturing wants to talk to you if your orders are under 300 pieces per style. So you're like, these two worlds don't easily match up. So early on, I think what happened was we had to find somebody, anybody who could meet our quality bar um, and uh, who would be willing to work with us. And so it took forever to get anything manufactured. We did a 10-piece line. We did almost 10 rounds of fittings because we had no background in fitting. Um, And uh, I basically would bake cookies and take it to the manufacturer to get him to finish sewing our garments because we were his absolute lowest priority customer. It was brutal. And the, the fabrics were good, but they weren't amazing because we couldn't do custom blends like we do now because we just didn't have the quantities. So early on, I would say our styles are were like a shadow of what you would buy from us now, but they were what a true first step looks like. That's, that's an important point. How did that make you feel? Was was it frustrating? Were you I don't like the term I don't want to say embarrassed, but were you anxious about putting a product out that you didn't feel would like met the vision of what you what you saw long term? Well, I will tell you this. Um the bar was so low. I mean, Lunia has mm-hmm. set the bar. And and so that's been true the entire way through. So even the very first collection that we made was better than what I had tried on the market when I was determining if there was market potential for Lumia. So while I'm embarrassed in hindsight, I was comfortable with the end product. I wouldn't have shipped it, which is why I did 10 rounds of samples. I wouldn't have shipped it if I didn't feel good about it. It's just that looking back, it's almost laughable, you know, it's just by comparison. But I'm lucky because 
I'm not in a saturated industry. I'm in an industry where there was a true market gap. And so I could come in and set the bar from the very first day. The challenge when you're going into a more saturated space is you don't have any room to grow in that way. You can't evolve your product over time because there's already stiff competition. You need to lead with something amazing. And I will say just one thing to highlight, because if there's entrepreneurs listening, there's obviously different ways to approach starting a business. And I chose to go pretty slow, organic, test and learn. That was my approach um, that required relatively low capital investment early on and also was a bit of... Um, uh, a bit of that showed my risk adverse nature, right? It allowed me to uh, not totally go all in from a financial standpoint, um, but it let me see, okay, is there, is there legs here? What do I need to iterate on? And I think maybe my, my tech background may be very comfortable with this idea of small batches with lots of iteration. The other way, though, that you see people go into businesses is they'll raise capital early on and they'll go big. They would do all of the development right from the get-go. They'd hire all their key hires very early on. And I've seen it, you know, go both ways. So I'm sort of illustrative of just one path that you can take. Yeah, and I think what's what's so great is the flexibility that you had to allow your product to sort of grow a little bit in the market and, and you figure out how to make it amazing was because you were, you had such a strong differentiator. Yeah. And what jumps out to me about that is, is your differentiator. So, so from early on, it was like, you were focused on sleepwear, right? Right. Did you ever, were you ever worried that like, you might be cutting off some of your market potential or did anybody else say something to you like, oh, well, shouldn't you have uh, clothes for men as well to start or, or anything oh. like that? I, I feel like that's, I, I'm, I'm impressed at the level of focus that you were able to keep. Um, did any of that come up? Yeah, so I was lucky because, as I mentioned, I was getting my MBA at that same time. And I was taking a class, and one of the, um, the, the conversation points of the class was about focus, about the risk of uh, getting pulled in 100 different directions. And I mean, this is one of the reasons I like capital constrained businesses. I'm not a big fan of businesses that raise tons of money early on in many cases, because what happens is you don't, you're not forced to create a very small playground for yourself. The temptation to spread wider is always there. And um, so I, I think almost by virtue of not having an endless amount of capital investment in this business at this stage, um, I had to go, what is the one thing that I can do that other people can't do? And I just kept coming back to sleepwear. And the temptation was always there. I mean, look, I had people in my ear talking about mattresses, um, bedding, uh, kids. And, and don't get me wrong, they're all still there. But I'm really glad that I stayed super focused. The other thing I think people tend to do is they want to go wide to establish that they can get market share. But... In today's globalized economy, actually, people tend to be buying much more specifically. They want to buy their Quip toothbrush from Quip. You know, they want to buy the best toothbrush from a toothbrush company. They want to buy their, their casual, comfortable shoe from Allbirds. They want to buy their, um, their jacket from Canada Goose, right? So people are actually getting much more specific about buying the best product from the company that makes that specific product. 
And so even just being a student of my own buying habits helps reinforce the decision to be really focused. And that was why ultimately we were able to um, not go broad even in our SKUs. We, we stayed very narrow in our products and the styles that we manufactured um, and made sure that we could create a sieve uh, essentially for each product so that we weren't making products that didn't fit our, our sleep standards. And, and I will tell you, since those early days, we have loosened up the grip a little bit on product. And now we're talking about um, off hours all the time she's home. And some of that is now us being responsive to our customer base and recognizing that they're already wearing our products all around the house. Basically, we're the clothes they put on from the moment they get home until the moment they leave for work the next day. Or in the case of the weekend, they basically never take it off. And so there has been a little bit of a loosening of the belt just around acknowledging the way she's actually living in our product. Sure. And it sounds like you're still able or you're still kind of going vertical in that it's a customer that you've already acquired and you're just yeah. giving them more of what they ex what the quality they expect from you. Yes, exactly. But still being pretty tight around that off hours message. Cool. Um, so I think that's a good, so, so you had these 10 SKUs. Um, how did you how did you sell them? Who bought them? How did you think about early marketing? Where do those customers come from? Totally. So um, I called everyone I knew, <laughs> my mom, my mom's friends, my mother-in-law, everybody. And um, I would pop up in my home. I went to people's works that, and I would bake, we did a really funny pop in one day uh, um, at an office where we baked brownies and we said, and actually, um, my one of them we did at my husband's office, and we baked brownies. And his office skews more male, but it was like, hey, I've got a captive audience of people here, and it was early days in their company, so I baked like 500 brownies, <laughs> and um, we basically said, score brownie points for with your SO, and it was right around Valentine's Day. So we just went straight to the men and tried to market the sleeper to uh, for women to men because that was what Amazing. I had. So basically what I'm saying is I capitalized on any potential opportunity that I could find to get the product in front of people. And it was very homegrown. Awesome. And so I think something that comes up a lot with our founders who have physical products and are trying to sell the first version is shipping becomes very expensive. And so like each customer that you get you'd love to get as much information out of them as possible. So was mm -hmm. that sort of your, and you sort of talked about test and learn. So was keeping the circle relatively tight your way of like keeping that feedback loop tight on the early product? I mean, I'm a digital brand. So I always have mm. contact capabilities with my customer. So what I did early day and I actually still do is I would email customers who brought a product, ask them if they'd be willing to get on the phone with me and give me like three minutes of their time. And I wanted wow. to learn about why they bought it, how they're wearing it, how I could do a better job. And like I said, people are incredibly generous when you're vulnerable and mm. they were so kind and would get on the phone and they would tell me more than you'd ever think. Amazing. So after, after those, the sort of unscalable ways to get customers, were you testing out with any social ads or any other like niche types of marketing, anything like that? Yeah. So this is five years ago. Um, and this was before the DTC tidal wave that we're seeing yeah. now. So 
it wasn't as clear a path as if I started today, I would recognize right from day one that that's something we would need to do. Um, but back in this time period, I was sort of getting mixed messages around how organic I could expect my growth to be. Mm-hmm. And I think this kind of comes back to really knowing your customer and your product and what the good things are about your challenges, you know, what challenges you're going to have and what um, what the strengths are of your product and your customer. And so, for example, I was, you know, talking to people um, who were really pushing the influencer marketing programs on Instagram because this was, you know, like I said, five years ago. But the problem is I have a sleepwear product. And at that point, people weren't like letting you into their bedroom the way they are now. And so even if I gifted them the product, it's not like it's an amazingly cute cocktail dress that from first glance, you have to have it. It's a product that makes you feel good. Hard to capture that in an Instagram post. And so, you know, for me, early days, I was I was grappling with how do I grow and how much should be organic and how much should be paid. And influencer marketing didn't make sense to me because it felt uh, like something I couldn't count on. My cost of goods were really high because I was doing low quantities at that time. And my, frankly, my cost of goods are still really high because they're really high quality materials and sewing. So I just kept going, I can't give money to this. And, and so ultimately we did try paid ads and it took a while for them to work. I will say not too long, but let's say three months. So it's a bit of a commitment. Even now I talk to friends starting businesses and it sounds like you have to be patient with it, but um, it works when you nail the message, the visuals and the tone. And that was something that took us time and iteration to get sorted out. So there was a process of us figuring out who's the audience that we target and how do we target them. And um, that's been something that luckily we've been able to refine over the years. But I knew I had a real business when I could start making conversion marketing work for it. So along those lines, I'm curious about early pricing. Every entrepreneur we talk to is like, we could spend 10 hours talking about pricing. I know it's a really complicated and difficult thing. Um, I'm curious about how you thought about pricing early on whether you were thinking about profitability, whether you're thinking about getting the product in people's hands, whether you're thinking about long-term pricing. So what was your, what was your thought process? I mean, look, I think you have to build for the company you want to be. Hmm. And in that, I had to think about pricing and market positioning. So knowing that I'm going to be a premium product, that I'm going to invest a lot in manufacturing and fabric costs, I knew that I was going to have to be speaking to a luxury consumer. That was clear very early on. And I really had to look at the sleepwear market, but then also related markets because the sleepwear market is so small and nobody makes products the way I was making products. They, they were almost like an afterthought, like J. Crew at checkout, you know, the kind of thing that you just grab and throw in your bag. They weren't incredibly thoughtful, well-constructed, high-quality garments. And so I had to reference brands like Lululemon, James Purse, other brands that are really, really thoughtful about fabric ways and quality and go, I think I'm talking to this consumer. And um, and so then I had to figure out, well, what do I think is long-term? What do I sort of think I can get my cost to? And, and what makes sense for this consumer, frankly. 
And, and so I did price for where I thought we'd end up, which means I lost money on all my first orders by a lot. And that's hard. So it does require some level of seed capital or some amount of money that you can allocate towards losses if you're going to take this strategy. But I knew I couldn't spike the costs anymore in a category that people weren't already trained to buy in. Interesting. So the price was sort of part of the story about the quality of the product and who you were really competing with and all of that. Yeah. I mean, I basically went as low as I could go uh, without giving my product away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, And that's where you see the prices now is we're we're still a luxury product. We're, we're not inexpensive, but we're spending so much. I'm, I'm almost spending $22 a yard on my silk. So if wow. you just work backwards on the math, it's not like I'm making cash hand over fist on every garment that I'm buying, but I'm really investing in high quality goods and make. And that to me is all about investing in a long-term brand, which was what I've always set out to build. Yeah. And that comes across so strongly, like everything that you've done this entire time from the moment that you decided to commit to it was this was going to be something that was going to work and be sustainable and be around for a long time. That's amazing. Um, Thank you. So the next thing I want to talk about, it was really interesting to me and I found it in an article about you or an interview or something. Um, So it's about Girls Inc. And I wanted to hear a little bit about that. So I saw that after your first profitable month, you funded a new school for Girls Inc., um, which is a nonprofit with the central goal of empowering and inspiring young girls and women. So first, I'd like to hear about it. And then I'm curious about, like, how do you sort of think about the tension between building a brand that can be sustainable and profitable and then also building a brand that's able to be philanthropic? Um, I think it's just, like, interesting and, and really amazing. So I guess... Start with start with Girls Inc. and then get into the uh, the logistics of it. Sure, I may actually want to start a little bit before Girls Inc. because cool. um, I think it's important to understand why would I even be thinking about philanthropy? I have a business that's not successful yet. Why girls? Um, obviously, that's a popular conversation point now. But again, this was so seven years ago. You know, we were founded very female focused, and this was before the Me Too movement and before a lot of the conversations around female centric uh, leadership and all of that. And I will say, um, I talked myself out of launching Lunia, as I mentioned, for two years. The thing that made me finally launch Lunia was actually getting pregnant. And so here I had been talking myself out of this business for so long. And now I realized I'm pregnant. I'm never going to have more time than I have right now. And, you know, even more than that, how am I going to explain to my children why I didn't do it? That I'm afraid, you know, and then what am I modeling as a female for my children? You know, both my son, I have a son and a daughter. You know, how is my husband going to, or my, how is my, my son going to look at women when I have dreams that I didn't pursue? And I don't mean you should just pursue them blindly. And if you don't have the right idea that you should do them, but I had a good idea and there was market potential on this idea. And so why wasn't I doing it? You know? And so weirdly, I think one of the important things is I have always been very motivated around being the change. This is the quote that I, as sort of my personal motto, but, you know, I'm lucky. I had the, you know, I'm, I'm educated. I had the means to be able to start something like this. And if I don't do it, who's going to do it? And then if I don't, if, if nobody does it, how are we going to ever get 
to equal opportunity or parity as we're having all these conversations about it. So I actually sort of felt a lot of pressure around being the person that I want to model for my kids and then how I want to show up in this world. You know, how do I, um, you know, I don't want to, I want to walk the walk. And so, um, so early on, I think that being a strong female leader, being a a role model for my kids has always been very key um, to my motivation. And now if I take you back to Girls Inc. and go, I ended up there because I'm a huge fan of businesses like Patagonia, Um, businesses where they're like trustworthy businesses that are making money, but then are also trying to kick the ball forward in some area. And I would say that Patagonia has been an advocate for the environment for long before they even had a marketing team. That was just authentically who they were. You know, they're outdoors adventurers. That's that's who founded the company, you know? So I think that it's so amazing. We're a capitalist, consumer-driven country, and so when you can find a way to make something that's self-sustaining, but is self-sustaining for good, whatever that cause may be, it's an incredibly powerful economic engine for change. And so I, I love Patagonia. I took a tour of them, met a bunch of their team, I was just so inspired by how they were able to build a great business and then let that be an engine for change. And I thought, that's what I want to do with Lunia. And I want to set the tone for that right from the beginning. And I really couldn't pick any other topic but the ones that were true for me. And and I think that, you know, helping see women advance, particularly in a professional sense, is just, it's been core to me. So when I tried to figure out, okay, where do I turn to make a difference and what is a pretty challenging, complicated problem, I really started researching a lot of philanthropies. And um, what I liked about Girls Inc. is they say strong, smart, and bold. And while I had looked at a lot of programs and a lot of them had a very academic focus, when I met these girls that were in you know, a lower income living situation, it wasn't just academics they were struggling with. They didn't have a parent home a lot of the time. They're, they had no family members that they'd ever seen go to college. They didn't even know what jobs they could dream of. You know, so you had a situation, many of them watched violence on a daily basis. Um, they'd seen shootings. They often were single family households at one school that I'm thinking of in particular. It's 80% of the student base has a single family household. So you've got, you know, they need support, not just academically, but Girls Inc. stepped in and they think about how do we make these girls strong and resilient and bold because they're going to, we're going to try to get them to take risks and push beyond where their parents are. And then of course they need to be smart and well-equipped academically. And so I just really like the holistic nature of how Girls Inc. approached uh, solving this problem. And so Yeah, early on, I thought, you know, we had our first profitable month and and I thought, you know, this is the tone I want to set for what the stake in the ground that Lunia is making. And that was what we did. So we were lucky enough to sponsor Lennox Middle School. And uh, it's been great because we were able to foster a relationship with them and go visit the school. And um, it's been wonderful. It's incredibly inspiring. Really, really amazing job. Um, We get a lot of founders who, it's funny you bring up Patagonia because we hear that constantly. They're wonderful there's such a shining beacon in the space. And I hear about founders who are like, should I start this as a B Corp? How do I, if, if they're building something and a, and a core component of it, like it is for you is 
to be philanthropic or to support a cause. Um, I guess what would your advice be for them? Like what's been challenging about the process or, or how, I guess, is there anything that might be helpful that, that you've learned that you can pass on? Well, I'd say more money, more change. So it kind of sounds funny, but the more means you have, the more power you have to make impact in the world. I don't think you have to be shy or afraid of trying to build a successful enterprise or business. Um, and I think people that are good, well-intentioned people feel like they need to underscore their intentions by making it a B Corp or you know, being concerned about looking too successful. I look at companies, the reason why Patagonia stands out to us is Patagonia is a successful company and they're the kind of company that when the tax law changed, they could write a $10 million check to support the environmental agencies. $10 million is a big deal, but they could only write that kind of a check if they were a successful company. So for me, I wanted to make that first investment in Girls Inc. as a statement of my intentions. But the reality is my core focus is on building Lunia into being a very successful company because if I can't make it profitable, if I can't make it successful, it doesn't matter how well-intentioned I am, I won't be able to make any change. Um, and so I do think that people, even you know, when they're well-intentioned, should not be afraid of trying to build a big successful business. And that's a positive thing. I also happen to be lucky in my particular case because frankly, just by virtue of building this business by being a female leader, by, you know, having to build a business that attracts a lot of female employees. I'm also helping to solve that macro parity issue that we're talking about. So I'm kind of lucky in that just by doing what we do, we're able to make some of that change. But I do think good businesses, um, it's so intrinsic to who they are that it is almost always that way. I mean, Outdoor Voices is helping to get people moving. I think, you know, Riot Games does a lot of, um, to try to help people who might feel isolated or disconnected from society. They get to connect with each other in a different way. So almost you have a lot of situations where there's people who have felt kind of outcasted and suddenly they're in their community. So I think that a lot of these companies, a lot of the positive things they do are just so intrinsic to who they are. And to me, that's when you know you have the right cause. It doesn't have to be like a Tom's one for one scenario. It can mm -hmm. be organic. Yeah, that's great. And I, I also don't want to just gloss over the fact that you said you got pregnant and you thought that you were going to have more time. I think that's kind of, that's funny and kind of shows the type oh of drive God. that you have. I think most people think they're not going to have any time. Yeah. Um, I thought, well, what I thought was, Oh, I'm never going to have more time than I have right now. Got it. And got it. I think I also just completely grossly mis you know, underestimated <laughs> what being a parent was. That just keep I keep doing that over and over again. This parenting, <laughs> no joke. But but uh, you know sometimes what you don't know is your is is a gift. Very cool. And the last thing I'll say on the um, on the philanthropic angle is we spoke with the founder of Luke's Lobster. I don't know if they've mm -hmm. made it to the West Coast or not. Um, lobster roll company in New York, and yeah. he they're um, they're amazing. The food is delicious, but they're a B Corp, and okay. they were talking about how they like everything happens in steps and they still have plenty of plastic silverware. They have like, yeah. um, the, and they realize that and they're doing their best. And they're sort of saying like, we need to keep our margins at a certain point. And every step that we get more profitable, we knock off one more thing that's harmful to the environment and we just stay conscious of it. Um, yeah. and I thought that was pretty insightful. And sort I, of I think that is super insightful. And I also think that, um, helping, 
your customers understand that journey is also really important. Uh, we're also trying to look towards sustainability, but are realizing it's not the kind of thing that I can just overnight solve the problem. And so helping people to know that we you know, show progress so we can show results, but also intentionality and, and maybe some of the things we're working on behind the scenes to try to make a difference um, or even evolution of your own perspective. I think we just launched a men's line. And one of the reasons that I launched the men's line was because I sort of took a look at myself and thought, it's weird, but I'm almost excluding and I don't want to exclude just because I've been excluded, you know? And, um, and we had created this incredibly female-centric company. But the reality is what we're talking about is a time of day or a, a need for unwinding and relaxing. And so we thought, I don't want to be the person that in my very first, you know, as a, as a female leader, the way I show up in the world is by only addressing women. And so I thought, what a cool opportunity to welcome men into the home and into these kind of conversations, which in many cases, you know, they're not part of the meditation conversations or the sound baths or the yoga classes. And, and so we thought, you know, what a cool way to let's show up as leaders in this conversation around parity and be also willing to address the areas that, you know, men maybe are not incorporated in the conversation. And I think that's an evolved perspective from my part. And I think we have to bring people on that journey with us. We have to explain that to our customer base and and, and try to educate them so that they they know why. Yeah, and I, I was looking at the site earlier today and I filled up my Christmas list. It looks so good. Um, well, now we're going to track you all over the web. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, I have two more questions on the early stage stuff, which I think will be important. So um, when you start putting all of these sort of like all these balls get thrown up in the air where you're saying like, okay, we've got our 10 SKUs now. We've got our tactics for getting, you know, the factory to make them or, or whoever you were having make them like make the clothes faster and better. Um, we have to figure out who to get them to. We need to think about digital marketing, digital advertising as well. How did you think about prioritization early on? Um, was there anything that was there like a process that you followed or how did you know what to work on? Oh, that's a hard question to answer. <laughs> um, I think that's one where constrained resources were sort of helpful. I had to follow what I could get return on so that I could reinvest in growth. So it kind of means like mm. I knew I needed a website. I knew I needed to be up on social. I knew I needed some core products that resonated with people. And um, the how sophisticated my website or social media needed to be. I, I was probably, you know, had lower requirements. Um, our product I knew had to be amazing because I couldn't get people to come back and buy again. I couldn't get them to tell their friends if it wasn't fabulous. So I spent a lot of time on product and iterating there and also trying to stay pretty narrow, like we talked about earlier. So what is selling and why, and how do I just double down my resources on that? I don't, I don't need to launch 10 SKUs if there's not people that want to buy all 10 of those SKUs. What are the four of that that should be remade and sold the next time? So just it's to me, it's just about like laser focus on the core necessities. And early on, my hires kind of had to be really broad. They had to be this, this Swiss army knife uh, because I couldn't have a person to cover every area of the business. 
And, and so I think that you would see that one, if you were to walk in here today, it would look very different than what it looked like in the early day. But in the early day, it was all about um, what, what must be done to get to the next step, you know, just all about one foot in front of the other. Very cool. So the last question I'll ask on the early stage stuff is what I call the Billy Madison question, which okay. is, is there, <laughs> so is there anything that you'd like to emphatically tell entrepreneurs while squeezing their cheeks, uh, Adam Sandler style? <laughs> um, I'm torn between two things, but I would probably go with trust your gut because hiring has been one of the most painful experiences for me, getting the right people, um, figuring out how to create an incredible environment that people want to stay in, uh, people just in general is really hard. But a lot of my mistakes I, I made in, in people or hiring were around second guessing my own intuition. And I think that comes from not having tons of experience. So you instantly defer to other people. You assume they know what they're doing and that you don't. But I think I was right in almost every case. And, and I could have saved myself a lot of pain if I listened to that inner voice. The reality is, it's certainly in my case, other people don't necessarily know better than you because you're doing something different than's ever been done before, hopefully, if you're doing a differentiated business. And so you don't want someone that comes in and that says, ah, oh, this is the way to do everything. Even though at times you wish you could hire someone that would give you all the answers, but you, you can't, that doesn't exist. And so um, I think it would be to trust your gut. I love that. So let me ask you a quick question. So after you got those initial SKUs out, I assume that they did well, you started to get some traction and you started to grow because you've now got lots of SKUs, you've got men's, you've got bedrooms, which is your physical presence. Um, sure. I'm curious about what that looked like. So how did you know it was time to start adding more SKUs? How did you make the decision to start to spread to new cities by way of the bedrooms? Um, how did that all look? Yeah. Um, so early hires, I had someone who was doing social media and then she was also managing the web. She was doing the photography. That was sort of one person. I had someone who was doing production. Um, and then I think, you know, maybe the next person or the, the person that came closely after that, there was a, a merchant and she um, was used to looking at products and determining what people needed. And so uh, what they were buying, how the products were doing, collecting feedback. So she was very helpful in us determining what was resonating. So I would say that was a relatively early on hire. Now, while I say she a, was a merchant, she had to do many other things that she'd never done before because it was that stage of business. Um, but a lot of it was organic. You know, we started with a handful of fabric ways. We saw what was working. We iterated we tried, we would do capsules to experiment with new concepts, new styles. We play King of the Hill. So we'd run one style against an, a tried and true <laughs> style and saw which one would break, would, would win. Um, and so we did a lot of test and learn. And that was how we figured out product. We do like to think of ourselves fundamentally as problem solvers, though. Mm -hmm. So when you look at our collection now and see that it's basically built in terms of cool, restore, silk, uh, organic. What you're seeing there is us grouping products in terms of problem solving. And 
a lot of it is me. The problems became apparent as we would communicate with our customers. Temperature was obviously one of the most frequent conversations we were having with her. Restore was an opportunity to, in many cases, deliver her something that I don't even think she knew she could have. Like increased body circulation is fabulous for post-workout and traveling. And she didn't even know she could have it, but we felt pretty confident that it would resonate. And um, our early uh, tests all suggested that too. Even men's was at one point a capsule collection. It was actually last year we tested it. And um, it sold out right away. And so we realized, okay, there's an appetite in men's. Um, so that was a really great way to test it. We tried women or tried kids as an example, and kids was not as successful. Mm-hmm. I think that there was a bit of a, um, it was hard to make hit the right price point for kids and our cost of goods are really high. So we just couldn't, we couldn't make those two things come together perfectly Uh, So a lot of, it's just test and learn, test and learn. And when we talk about having a physical location, I don't think that's the right answer for everybody. I think if you have a low price point item, there might be less barrier to entry. You know, it's easier for somebody to take a risk on you online, but we're not inexpensive. So it's an investment and it's a category she might not be familiar with buying from. That's why we offered free returns very early on. Um, That's why we have, we subsidize a lot of the shipping costs. And that's why we ultimately added bedrooms so that she could come touch and feel the product, get to know the brand in an intimate setting. So do you think of those as an extension of marketing and, and sort of less so of a conversion? If it was just marketing, it would be a billboard, you know? Yeah. So I think it's both. Um, but I think that it is an incredible way to experience the product in its natural environment. If I put the product in a cold traditional retail store, you might not fully understand its use case or how it would fit into your life. So the opportunity to build out bedrooms that are each individualized from an aesthetic standpoint, but still modern, um, let us interpret the brand through many lenses, but also allows the customer to see themselves in one or many of our bedrooms and maybe even get inspired by how to rethink your bedroom and your home environment because that's really what we're doing here. We're trying to bring emphasis and importance to a time of day that is very often overlooked. Most of culture is talking about how to optimize your performance at work and how to get ahead and all this, but you know, you're seeing depression, unhappiness, you're seeing a lot of things that we could help change by helping to bring balance to people's lives and making that home period of their day something they enjoy more. And, and in many ways, that physical environment of the bedroom let us lean into that. Yeah, and this the story is so differentiated and clear throughout and all of the like I think it's so interesting and unique how you talk about product lines based on the outcome that they provide yeah. not like, you know, flannels or whatever else people might say. Mm-hmm. Um right. it just like it's so clear that you are different than other brands and and I totally understand why it's been successful. Um it's great so, hearing you say that because I wanted to say as a, I'm a perfectionist and <laughs> I'm constantly vexed by everything like, oh, we should have tighter brand messaging, better, you know, keep making the products better and better. I tell everybody that everything we make is just a 1.0 and how do we get to the 2.0? So it's it's really, I'm glad that you feel like it's tight and it's great and because, and, um, you know, we're just trying to keep getting better and better all the time. Yeah. And I, I, this is what I do. Like I am obsessed with this sort of, I'm obsessed with brand messaging, with outcome messaging. 
like my, if I could have something tattooed on my forehead, it would be edit to amplify. And, and I think you've just done, and I think you've done an unbelievable job of it. And it's, I know how hard it is. Um, yeah. and it, and it's, it's really, really well done. Um, Thank you. so you touched on mental quickly, and I think that that is a good place to finish up before I ask the question I ask all our founders. Um, I'm curious about the mental side of things. I know that we've talked a lot about the successes and how things have come together in a really great way, and they have, but I'm sure there have been tough times and there's nothing quite as raw as entrepreneurship. Any tactics that you've used that have been able to, to even out some of the lumpiness that can be the entrepreneur's life? I, I'm glad you say this because oftentimes people, you get all the press after you start to have success. And so when people are getting started, they think that's what it always looked like. And that really isn't the case. I'm friends with a lot of entrepreneurs and it's a pretty painful day to day. Early on, I mean, oh God, it was brutal because I didn't know anything about anything. Every day I was doing something for the first time and I had a team of people looking to me for answers that I didn't have. I was trying to be as confident as I could as a leader, but I had to be, again, vulnerable and honest with them about what I didn't know. And I made so many mistakes and I don't know any other way to learn, I guess, but they were so painful. And, you know, the people stuff in particular for me was always the most agonizing. I would sit in my car. We had no, I still don't really have any offices here. Um, very open work environment. And I would like cry in my car and then try to get my shit together. I don't know if I can cuss on here, but I just did. Sure. Um, <laughs> I would, I would try to pull myself together and, um, and then go back to the team and try to be energetic and confident and have a clear vision. And all of that went on the inside. I was dying. I was dying of self doubt. I was wishing I could do a better job. I was worried about, did I hire the right person? Um, can I trust this person? Should I be doing things differently? I mean, just like it's constant self-doubt. And then now um, it's, it's amazing because I think I've grown up through this company. It's been, like I said, about seven years of working on it. And I've just gotten comfortable with so much um, of the roller coaster ride. And I think that that's actually where my leadership has stemmed from now and, and I'm, I, I'm able to be so much more comfortable in my role now because I'm phased by very little. <laughs> I've had <laughs> crazy stories, which I can't share because of HR protection laws, but I will just tell you just things that like would blow your mind that I never thought would show up in a workplace. You're people's therapist, you're their boss, huh. you're their friend, you're everything to them, especially in small companies. When you're four people in a room, it's hard to have, it's not professional, you know, you're, you're surviving with these people and it's an incredibly intimate experience. You build incredible bonds with people, but you go through tough stuff with people. So anyway, it was challenging. <laughs> I don't even know exactly how far to go with that, but just <laughs> really challenging. And if I would say I'm lucky in that I have uh, developed an advisor team around me, uh, my husband being a great one, that's always been sort of an informal resource for me but also um, mentors that often started informally. So people that someone would connect me with that maybe were just out of my league from a hiring standpoint at that point of the business, but they would take interest in me or the company, or they wanted to build a long-term relationship with us. And I might call them in tough moments and 
unload a bunch of stuff on them and have them be great sounding boards for me. And then over time, some of those people were uh, compensated or equitized and, um, and a lot of them are still with me today. And so that's been one thing that's really helped me because sometimes you just need someone to say, you know, when you're, am I, you're going, am I crazy? Is this how it should be? And to have someone sit there and go, this is actually how it is. And, you know, let's, let's try to separate our emotions from the situation and let's go X, Y, Z. How do we break this down into a problem we can solve? And just like that, that resource, when you think that everything's falling apart, I mean, these people have been incredible for me. So I'm lucky I built a lot of those people. And I think the other thing for me that's helped is to find my own path as a leader. You know, you look at the famous leaders of our day and you, you tend to try to emulate them um, in different ways. But at the end, I think you just have to be yourself. And that's what, I don't know, that's what I came to. That's what's become the most natural. Great. It's an awesome answer. I appreciate it. I think we'll end there. I think that's a great one to end on. Thank you so much for coming on. This was really, really great. I really appreciate it. Maybe as a parting message, you can tell us what is your favorite thing to buy from Lunia? What should I be buying for my girlfriend for the holiday season? Oh, I would definitely go silk set. If you're a if you're a new customer to Lunia, the silk set is a surefire win. Perfect. Done. Thank you so much again for coming on. Thank you. I appreciate it. Head over to GetTackleBox.com and click podcast to get some more detailed notes. And if you made it this far, please toss us a subscribe, a rating, and a review. Thanks. Have a great week.